Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 325 and the return of Pete's fellow podcaster, one of the co-hosts of the now-completed At Percussion Podcast, more on that in the rave at the end of the show, and the director of percussion studies at Shenandoah University in Virginia, Carly Vigna. We'll get back to her shortly. But first up, Marching Mizzou completes its season, weirdly. Due to some bizarre outside-of-our-control circumstances, Marching Mizzou was able to travel, albeit with only about 30% of the ensemble, to the Gasparilla Bowl in Tampa, Florida, for the Wake Forest Mizzou Bowl game on December 23rd. We somehow managed to leave town during a winter storm, which was literally amazing. Since we had to get the plane de-iced and hoped the runway was clear enough for us to even leave. But it was great to get to visit the Tampa Clearwater area, a place I'd been very interested to go for a long time and quite enjoyed. And the students seemed to have a generally good experience going to the game. Because we were reduced forces, we did not take a lot of our members of the group, including our announcer for Marching Mizzou, Greg Crocker which meant that yours truly stepped onto the field. Literally, that's where the microphone for announcing was kept and announced for Marching Mizzou, which was great. Unfortunately, because we were required to be such reduced forces for this game, we ended up performing our pregame and halftime shows in the stands. But we were there. The Marching Mizzou students did wonderfully, particularly with the temperatures hovering at game time in the 30s which was not the plan for us to go to Tampa for that to happen. Wake Forest won the football game, which meant that Mizzou has still not won a bowl game since before myself and a director of athletic bands, and I accidentally referred to her in my announcements as doctor of athletic bands, though I think that's actually an upgrade. Dr. Amy Knops arrived at Mizzou. It was very cool, however, to get to spend time with Dr. Tim Heath, and his staff and students at Wake Forest, my alma mater. Tim gifted me a Wake Forest band shirt, and I'm happy to see that Wake's band is in good hands. Also, a big shout-out to Connie Fenton, mom of one of the feature twirlers, Carly Fenton, for making me the most fashionable I've ever been in my entire life during this game by putting rhinestones into my marching Mizzou tie. I've literally never had that many folks from all walks of life compliment me on my wardrobe. I I didn't know how to handle it. I tried to be gracious, but it was all just a weird thing. And my wife tagged me in a Gasparilla Bowl picture on social media, and that photo kept showing up during the game. It was too much of me. Let's move on. But it was good for my wife and I to get to see some of her folks after the game and to finally be in a break, which we are right now. All right, let's get to Carly Vigna. Carly was on the show in 2019, and it was great to have her back on. And you can find that episode in the show notes. Carly was performing at PASIC 2022 in multiple sessions. So we start with her discussion of getting ready for what I saw was a great performance in the new music research session. I was not there at PASIC long enough to catch her fundamental session, but I'm sure it went really well. It was also great to check back in with her because, as of the fall of 2021, Carly is now the Director of Percussion Studies at Shenandoah University in Winchester, Virginia. 
She's been putting a career together in the South Florida area for a long time and can now work at one location for her career. We talk about that decision and what that's meant for her and her family in this interview. Additionally, we chat about at percussion, which at the time of recording in October, I was not aware that the at percussion podcast was ending, which it did as of last week. So it was good to check in on that, and I'll have more to say about that in the raves segment after the interview. But all right, let's get to it. We recorded this interview with Carly over Zoom on October 28th, 2022, and it begins right now. All right, so Carly, tell me what you're presenting at PASIC this year and when you're presenting it. Yeah, so I'll start with the when. That's easy. It's um, Saturday, which is the 12th at 11 a.m., I'm going to be doing a clinic called Expressivity and Musicality, Moving Beyond the Ink. I had the idea for this class because about a year ago when I had just moved to Shenandoah and I was having like a large group of brand new students, new to me students all at once, I found myself saying a lot of the same things. So I was talking about um, things like, you know, here's how I like to interpret a tenuto, right? We, We want... We want, it, we want the tenuto to make the, the note sound longer, but we can't actually make it longer. So I think of an emphasis and um, it's not always an emphasis in volume, but an emphasis in weight. And so I was just describing how we use stroke to do these things over and over again. And that hadn't happened to me in my teaching life before because I never had like all new students all at once. Um, and so I thought like, I better put together a class on how I talk and think about a lot of these musical concepts. Um, and so that's what I did. It's it's based on a class I've done now a couple of times. I did it at University of Delaware last year and then at Indiana University at their summer workshop. Um, and so I'm kind of refining it, tightening it up a little bit and going to be able to do it. It's it's one of the education committee's fundamental series clinics. Um, and it's going to be mostly aimed, well, it's actually aimed at a pretty wide audience because I, I hope it'll be helpful for educators of all levels, percussionists and non-percussionists for any of those poor non-percussionist souls who wander into PASIC. And also helpful for anybody that's going to teach in the future to have this language to talk about these, these more subtle um, musical concepts. Um, and then also, you know, younger students or less experienced students or just people that kind of want to get out of just playing correct, you know, I'm going to play the right notes at the right time and follow what's on the page. And how do we make it, how do we make it say something and communicate something more? So um, that's Saturday. And I, I actually get to double dip a little bit because I get to play as part of the new music research presents series too. Um, the theme is new futures in percussion and um, including inclusivity. And I, I'm not sure exactly what direction they all went with it, but um, I'm going to be playing our Guru 7, which is a vibraphone solo by Alvin Singleton on one of those concerts that's Thursday at one o'clock. Busy, is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't think you could do two things, and I got the emails back, like, when they let everybody know, and I wrote back and said, like, are you sure? I think there was a mistake, and they're like, well, if you're if you're only playing one piece on new music research, they'll let you do something else, too, so I think one of the best pieces of advice I got about applying for PASIC is apply for as many things as you have ideas for, and you don't know which one's going to fit best with all the other things that are going on or 
you know, you don't know, um, you don't know what's going to, what's going to work the best. So I've done that every year that I've applied, just as many different things as I have the ideas to do. And sometimes I'm surprised. Did you find out about both of them at the same time? I think so. I think it was the same day. Some of the information comes in at different times, but yeah, I I think it was the the same, like same afternoon, something like that. Yeah. So you're you're like, uh, I, uh, (laughs) I think you said this twice or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they, they put the session in fall and I I guess probably when I got the first one, I don't even remember what was first, but probably I got the first one, opened it and was like, Oh, cool. Like I got this, I guess I didn't get that. I put like I don't know, four things in this year. Uh, <laughs> like, I guess I didn't get the other things. And then I got the second one and was like, oh, okay, well, that's cool. But wait, was it a mistake? <laughs> <laughs> Do I get to pick which one I wanted to? <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me about the vibraphone piece then. Well, let's, so what's the, how, how well do you know this piece? How long have you been playing it? What's your connection with this work? Yeah, I've been playing it a couple of years. I first did it, um, can you believe two years ago, we were still in the realm of if you're doing a solo recital, it's going to be online. Oh, um, yeah. I did I did a solo recital um, two years ago and it was online and um, it was through, there was a new music concert series at FIU that they were doing all through like, you know, those, those YouTube premieres. Um, director of this series brought this piece to my attention. I didn't know the composer. The composer's name is Alvin Singleton. I didn't know him or the piece, um, although I've looked at several of those pieces now. Um, he's a what we call a, a normal composer, a non-percussionist composer. And so he's written, he's written, no offense to percussionist composers, because I love, <laughs> I love percussionist composers' pieces, but um, he's written this series of solo instrumental works. Um, they're all called Our Guru. And so there's Our Gurus one through eight. Three of them are for percussion instruments. Um, I think I'll get this right. Seven is the vibraphone one. Oh, now I can't remember. Six and eight are also percussion. One is snare drum. I think six is marimba and eight is snare drum. Um, solo pieces. And they're, they're kind of, our guru means play in a language that's spoken in Ghana. Um, and I don't know, you know, there's a lot of different ways to use the word play in English. I don't know exactly the connotation, if it's a similar word in this, in this language. Um, but I think of it, it's like they they tend to be virtuosic, but also kind of playful, a little bit unexpected. Um, you know, it's, they're, they're just fun pieces. And, and there's one, let's see, there's one for viola. There's one for flute. I can't remember all the or gurus, but just kind of these interesting little solo pieces in his repertoire. So Alvin Singleton is an African-American composer, um, which is part of how it it fits into the the new music research thread of of, um, inclusivity and, and, you know, moving forward to a more diverse community and music world and profession world. And I don't know a whole, whole lot about him. As far as I know, those are the only three pieces that he's written for solo percussion in his career. He's had a, a lengthy career. Um, I have researched him. I don't have it all off, off hand in my mind <laughs> today, but he's where, he's been composer in residence with some major symphonies. I want to say Atlanta Symphony, um, and he's been on faculty at, at a handful of schools too. Um, I think artists in residence kind of kind of situations. So it's been fun to play the piece. Um, I've played it a lot in the last couple of years. I find when you find a vibraphone solo that you really like, 
like it's it's like there it is there's my vibraphone solo for this yes. I've, I've played it around at a lot of places it's easier to travel with than a five octave marimba you know um yeah it's a nice it's a nice piece because singleton is not a necessarily a percussion composer or a composer who, who's incorporated percussion necessarily or um does the is it idiomatic for the instrument yeah um there's a lot of one of the like characteristics of the piece is a lot of really rapid grace note passages um and it works it all lays perfectly well you know you, you have to as you're learning it take a second and figure out how can i do this um with four mallets and how does it how does it work out um it's heavy it, there's a lot of extended rolls mm. um, which is a little tiring but you know that's that's an effect yeah yeah um, yeah it, it all it all lays perfectly well um, the snare drum solo is challenging. Um, I recorded this during COVID too. It's challenging because there's a lot of back and forth, like playing on the head and rim shots and rim clicks and, and just to get the precision and, you know, actually get consistent rim shots at the tempo we printed is like pretty challenging, but I mean, it, it works. It's really interesting. Actually, I like his snare drum writing. There's a lot of space in the snare drum writing, um, meaning like open time which we often don't find especially in like as drummers we're like yeah I'm gonna play a lot of notes on the snare drum it's gonna sound cool um and there's you know there's like repeated simple rhythms that is something you don't always see on the snare drum and then there's also really complicated technically challenging passages um but I, I like that it's kind of a fresh take on what what snare drum can do and can be I know you're not playing the snare piece for, for PASIC, but when you've done that piece, you said, because there's a lot of space, is there any notation in terms of what you should do in that space? Or is it just, you're just kind of letting the space happen and then you jump back in? Yeah. And his piece, there, you, there's not a lot of um, musical direction in the piece, not in a bad way, but you know, there's a, there's a lot left open to interpretation um, in all the pieces. I haven't performed the marimba one yet, but I've, I, I've looked at it and, and started learning it, but there's, there's a lot left open to interpretation. The snare drum piece, if I'm remembering right, it's, I can't remember the, the metronome marking, but it's like steady tempo through the entire thing. Like there's no, I don't think there's any like fermatas or free floating time in that sense, but it's like quarter note feels like there's open time and snare drum sometimes, you know, or just, I, I, I guess the rhythmic motif that this used to, really, it's something like, duh, no, now I'm thinking of Nabucco. It's not Nabucco. It's not da, 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 but it's something like kind of relatively simple and sparse, you know, it's not um, heavily ornamented or lots of rolls or really active and kind of repetitive. Um, so it's, it kind of feels like a, a process piece an experiential piece in that way yeah but yeah nothing theatrical or you know <laughs> wave your arm like this after you play the, the I, quarter note. <laughs> what you know coming coming after aphasia i would imagine that anything that's not that level would almost feel like well ah. <laughs> 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 well well doing a piece like aphasia can um you know make you a lot more aware of the way that you move even when you're doing a normal normal regular musical piece like, like one sure. of the pieces and and um you know i already mentioned tenuto and how stroke affects how we feel the length of a note like there's so much about 
how we move that affects how the audience perceives the sound we're creating. Yeah. Well, you know, relatedly, going back to your um, going back to your clinic, you know, when you've when you did phase, which by the way, aphasia was incredible. I just that you oh, your thank performance you. was so good. And I I'm a, uh, you know what what may have been more impressive, if anything else, was you didn't seem phased at all by the fact that it was a packed room. Like maybe, maybe you did, but, but like you, it, it, it was like, you were so focused and it was so good. And that room was like totally locked in. Um, (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah. And I, and I just imagined like, once that was done, I wonder, did you like almost collapse? Like, were you like that, like took up an enormous amount of energy to, to keep that all day? Well, that was an exhausting day, but actually the the beautiful thing about aphasia as far as playing it for, that was like a really big crowd. Um, I don't think there was anything programmed at PASIC opposite that concert. So that was like, that's why so many people were there. And actually, I think, I think I had to go on stage and start while they were still trying to get people in the door. Yes. Um, the, The good thing about that piece is, you know, you have to like, stare straight ahead and fixate on a point and you break character if you look anywhere else. So I actually didn't realize the full impact of like what, and there were lights on me. Like I couldn't really see. Um, And that, you know, right after, like I walk off stage and Steve Schick was playing right after me. And so, you know, like I said, I was like, I got to hear him perform. I sat down (laughs) with the audience and then I'm looking around and I'm like, whoa, like this is kind of (laughs) surreal. But th- thanks for your kind words. That was a that was that was fun to perform. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was it was really great. So where I was where and where I was taking this is that a p- I'm wondering if a piece like aphasia and I know that your clinic is is kind of for all you know as you said it's intended for kind of every age group and every mm-hmm. level. But you know what kinds of things playing a piece like like aphasia and doing that kind of theatrical stuff how does that, how do you incorporate that into, I guess I would say standard, but in terms of what is more typical performance lit for percussionists? Well, yeah, that's actually, it does tie together because doing theatrical works, I call theatrical works, anything that's um, incorporating movement or speech vocalization, um, any kind of acting or adopting a character, that sort of thing. Um, uh, Theatrical works, and, you know, studying and performing them is so much of what helped me kind of unlock a level of expressivity in my normal profession playing, you know, playing an orchestra, playing regular solo repertoire, chamber repertoire. That was just a major turning point from, for me. I realized like I'm learning so much about how I can use, you know, my human body in non-musical ways to express what's happening musically and and to enhance what's happening musically um not to say that it's not important what we sound like like the sound production of course is so important but but just the way that we move affects how people perceive the sound and that's one of the reasons um you know the visual element is one of the reasons that live performance is so important and totally irreplaceable by um youtube recitals (laughs) you know just purely audio audio experiences but um, yeah, for me, through my doctorate, I, I imagine we probably talked about it the last time I was on the show years ago, but through my doctorate, I got really master's to, to an extent, really into theatrical repertoire. Um, it was something that was always interesting to me. 
I, I realized as I, especially as I got through a couple of pieces, I was like, wow, I'm a different player now than I was before doing Corporal. I'm a different player now than I was before I did any Stuart Saunders Smith or, or any of those works. Um, helped me feel more comfortable on stage. Helped me understand that when I walk on stage, um, I am telling a story and I am a character. I don't have to be like, I don't have to be Carly who just taught four lessons and then had lunch and walked the dog and now I'm on stage. Like that doesn't matter. What matters is now I'm performing, you know, whatever it is, even performing with an orchestra, like I'm the timpanist in a Beethoven symphony right now. And this is my singular focus. Not that you can't be yourself on stage, but being able to kind of, regardless of the circumstances, if you're thinking like, I got so many emails to respond to tonight after this concert, or um, I've got like a dissertation I have to read or, you know, whatever thing, like, like you have to leave that aside and be so fully um, physically and mentally and emotionally engaged in the performance that you're doing. And so that was one of the big things that, that I learned. And then, um, you know, all the repertoire is so different. Um, theatrical repertoire. It's like a catch-all term. It's kind of like multi-profession, like multi-profession can mean so many different things and have so many different challenges that, um, you know, you learn different practice strategies for learning the repertoire and you just, you know, you unlock totally different skills. Um, so there's that, but yeah, I guess uh, the, the, the tie-in of, you know, all the work I've done in theatrical percussion to this class, the expressivity, and I'm not really going to be talking about anything theatrical, some stroke because stroke affects the sound and the perception of the sound. Um, but is that, that theatrical percussion helped me learn how to play with a lot more expression and a lot more, you know, a lot more maybe command and, and like and telling a story, feeling like a, like a, a character in a lot of ways than, than I did before. You, you're saying that there's all these, you have these uh, students that are all new to you and you're getting started with them and they're at varying levels. So it's like, obviously that you're stepping into that situation. Was there a point when you were, when you do these lessons and you're saying this thing to every person where, where maybe it was like the fourth time in a row that you had said this one comment and you're like, okay, <laughs> there's something here and I need to like, I need to organize it and present it. Well, yeah, I mean, that that's, that's how it went. And it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, these students don't know anything, you know, they did sure. it. Just people talk about and describe these concepts in different ways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was realizing like, I've said this a whole, like, like, oh, it struck me like, oh, not everybody teaches how to shape a phrase the way that I do. And, you know, that's good. Cause if everybody did, the world would be really boring. But yeah, it was, it was just that it was explaining, you know, this, many of the same things a lot of the time. Um, and then I started having the thought of like, I should do a class, you know, I, let's do a studio class on this. Um, and then like, I got asked to do some other thing. When it, the first time like I formally put the class together was for the, the University of Delaware International, wait, what, not International, University of Delaware Interactive Percussion Seminar. I think that's the right acronym, UDIPS. Um, which was super cool. It was a great event um, that Jean Kaczynski and Tim Brocious put together last February, last March, February or March. It was in the winter. There was snow. It snowed that weekend. Um, which you yeah. had to reacclimate yourself to, obviously. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other topic. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, is, I shoveled snow this winter for the first time in uh, almost 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> been a while <laughs> yeah yeah 
but yeah, that was the first time that I kind of formalized it, but it came from just realizing, oh, here's the normal stuff that I talk about in lessons and mm. not everybody talks about it in this way. And, you know. So when you present, are you going to have uh, various, like you're going to have a set of timpani, a mallet instruments, like, so you, are you going to kind of like go instrument to instrument or are you just kind of general concept apply or something? I don't know. Yeah, um, actually, I, I think for PASIC, it has to be slightly shorter and I cut the timpani part of the, the presentation. We'll keep it a little bit more focused, but yeah, I'll, I'll do several examples on snare drum and some on marimba and vibraphone. Um, and hopefully, I'm still working out precise timing, but I'm planning to do a little triangle too, um, you know, not non-pitched melodic playing. Um, yeah, so like talking about the top, the all the different um, concepts and then applying them in, in repertoire. The session that you're, you're, you said it's under the educational, what, what's the, what is yeah, it under? The, fundamentals with with capital uh, the, fundamentals. the okay. fundamentals that's the that's the track and basic that the education committee um puts together is the is the main idea this should be like do you get from either when you apply or when you accept is there a part where they say okay this is actually like parameters or here's your audience is there anything like beforehand that you knew to, in terms of how you would then organize your own presentation? Honestly, not really. Um, I, I feel that as a percussion community, we could do better probably with guidelines for applying to PASIC. I don't know if anyone listening um, has had this feeling like you're, you're like, I want to apply for PASIC this year. And you go and you look at the categories and then you have an idea and you wonder like, does this fit in this category or this category? I mean, it's like, it's natural for that to happen. I think some have maybe more clear descriptions than others. I kind of had an idea um, when you serve on a committee, Pete, I can't remember, are you on a PAS committee? Uh, health and wellness. There you go. Um, yeah. When you're on a committee, part of what you do, it seems like every committee's job is a little different, but um, at least in the ed committee, part of what you do is like a group of the education committee or sometimes everybody um, judges all of the basic applications that relate to that area. Before I ever applied, I had the opportunity to, you know, score, I don't know, 30 or sometimes yeah. more applications. Um, mm -hmm. And you see some amazing ones and you see some ones that are lacking in one or more areas and you kind of get to see like, oh, so-and-so was really good. And this one, I think it would be stronger if it had this and this, you know, those, those sorts of things. So that, that was really helpful for me. Um, otherwise it can feel like, you know, it, it feels like you're doing a homework assignment, but you don't know what you're being graded on and you don't know, you know, you don't know what you have to do to get selected. Yeah. I mean, that's what's always, I mean, I've certainly felt, I wonder if you have felt the way, I mean, I understand kind of like you, you send a bunch of stuff and you're like, maybe something will catch and you know, all that, mm -hmm. those things, but it's always interesting because they don't, they don't give feedback. They don't tell you like necessarily this is what's missing. And I get it. Cause there's a lot. And, but there are times when you're like, it would be nice to know like why I haven't gotten it. And, and I would, I would bet, you know, like on education side, some of it is you're trying to, there's like a lot of different elements you're trying to accommodate that maybe if you get three things that are closely related to the same topic, well, you're not going to do all three because you, you would only be serving one community. Is that somewhat right? 
Yeah, like you're not going to have, I, I can't remember exactly how many fundamental sessions there are, but say if there's five of them, you're not going to have, have three on accessories, even if they're all super strong from amazing, you know, players and teachers, like it's just not, it's not going to fit that year. And that's the hard thing is you don't know. I mean, it's, it's the same as applying for jobs or auditioning for an orchestra. Like you don't know what the people on the other side of the screen are going to think or what, you know, what their preferences are going to be or. It's just, yeah. Well, I, I think I was realizing, I think it was three years ago or so mm-hmm. that we talked. I obviously know what the big change is. So we'll just get to that rather than saying, what's happened last three years, Carly? Well, <laughs> something really important happened about 18 months ago. Right. Which is? Well, I I got a job. I got a, <laughs> my first full-time teaching job. Um, I'm up at Shenandoah Conservatory in Winchester, Virginia. Um and it's been a it's been a wonderful journey of getting to know what having a full time teaching job is. Uh, in many ways, it's not exactly how I expected it to be. Um, in some like very positive ways, and some ch- more challenging ways than I expected to, like like anyone might might expect. But it's been it's been wonderful to. Um, it's just amazing to be in the same place every day. Like that is it it. Being being at one school instead of before, I was at um, teaching at the college level at three different schools, and then two youth youth orchestras, and then sectionals here and private studio stuff. I was like really spread out. I, I carried this rolling bag pretty much everywhere that I went if I was teaching, and it had all the books that I used most of the time. You know, like the most most often ones, and I would still it would happen every day that I'd be like. Oh, I wish I had that pair of mallets with me, or I wish I had that solo in my bag, but I didn't. Was like lugging this rolling bag around everywhere, and um, yeah, being in the same place every day is like it takes a lot of the challenges, unnecessary challenges, out of life. Um, you know, just teaching life. Like, how good? Oh, I've got to demonstrate something on tambourine. Like, I've got my own tambourine here. It's right here in my office, and it's set up just how I want it. And yeah, so there's a lot of convenience, and I, I love um, students have questions; they can just knock on my door. <laughs> it's not like it's not like constant email, and I'm only at this school, you know, half a day or one and a half days a week, and and that sort of thing. And and just that level of like accessibility. I walk by the practice rooms, and I know who's practicing, and I know how they're practicing, and I know you know what I can kind of guess what some of their questions might be in the lesson, and all of that is wonderful. I will say I thought back when I was freelancing and being an adjunct and um, and all of that, I thought that having one full-time job was way easier than everything else that I was doing. And it is not exactly true. <laughs> uh-huh. What I have found is that basically, you know, the, the one job will take just about as much energy and time as you are able and willing to pour into it. Um, and so one of the things that that I've worked on is, you know, um, learning when to say no or to delegate or say maybe, you know, maybe one of my graduate students would like to play this piece um, or, you know, the, those those types of things or, you know, these next hundred emails can wait until tomorrow morning when I'm at my desk again. Doesn't need to be. Let's keep at it until until you know midnight or or whatever it is. So um, I I really thought that 
I would feel like, like magically I had more time. Um, and in some ways I do, because now part of my job is, you know, performance is that, that scholarship side of what I do. Like, so, you know, I do have, like, I can do a faculty recital at school. Um, you know, that, that I have more practice time. It's only built into my schedule if I build it in and make sure that it happens. But, um, and I, you know, I have more time for creative projects. It's part of my job that I have to do it. It's not an extra outside thing. I mean, as an adjunct, you know, you're never, you're, you're only contracted to teach the hours and the classes you're teaching and, and that sort of thing. So in some ways, yes, like I have more time for creative work, um, but it is just as consuming as you will allow it to be. So balance is always a struggle in everybody. It's always a work in progress, right? Finding the right balance between doing your job, doing your job well, but also living your life well and enjoying things outside of your work. When I found out you got the job, I was just like, okay, good. Cause I knew, cause I know when, when we had talked about it and you were explaining all of the things you were doing. <laughs> and I, I don't remember if I said this last time, but I was like, how are you doing that? Cause I knew that it was, it was so much and covered a pretty large area. If I'm not mistaken yeah. too, of Southern Florida. Yeah. Florida. I know it's hard to say because you you got you have a full time job and you're you're primarily at one location now. But did you think was there a point getting near either when jobs started applying and you were applying for them and trying to figure out what you wanted to do, Mm -hmm. where you're like, I don't know how how sustainable this is for that much longer. That was that was really like kind of the turning point um you know my husband's a musician too and he was doing really similar work to what I was doing as a bassoonist and the two of us were um I think when we finished we both finished our doctorates and we're like okay let's see if we can make a living in music and freelance and you know let's set up private studios and and there was a point like early on when we were first out of school that we're like okay like this is great we had so much energy and we worked a whole lot um, and especially when you don't know, you know, like you're finishing school and you're building a studio and, you know, just trying to get more work, like you'll kind of say yes to everything. Like it's always like, yeah, I'll do more and more and more. And we had reached a point where it, it was almost a breaking point of like, this is not sustainable. If COVID also, Pete, like you, you happened to, when I was on the show, you happened to talk to me at a point where it was like the wildest schedule I'd ever had like we had just moved we we bought a house which was amazing but um it was like at least 45 minutes away from most of the places we worked and so the commutes were adding up and it was like it was the wackiest time in my professional life um and had COVID not happened when it did, like, I don't know how I would have made it through that year. <laughs> um, it's hard to imagine, like, and and what, what might have happened if the world didn't slow down. And, you know, I went from teaching seven days a week, most days, like eight, 10, 12 hour days to, I still taught a lot. I was still teaching like 30 or 40 hours a week, but it was all on Zoom in my studio at home. I didn't commute. Um, I had time to practice, like really dig in productive technical practice. Um, and it was like that. So that was a major turning point. It was just like, this is not sustainable. Let's find something that is. Because I, I, I want to ask you more about your husband's part of this as well, because I know it is. Um, and with any um, partnership is the, you know, the is figuring out like 
we still want to be married to each other. <laughs> I mean, and that's not a, that's not a minor thing. Yeah. Uh, back up a sec. Had you been applying to a lot of stuff? Like, had you been just kind of like keeping your, your application and everything updated to kind of continue to try to get this job, a job like this? Yeah. Um, we had both been applying for full-time jobs with, um, I'll say with varying degrees of energy and enthusiasm. Like there were periods yeah. of time in our lives in South Florida. It's like, we bought a house. We're like, okay, like we're kind of settling in. We like the work we're doing every year. It gets a little better, but um, there were other times that, you know, we'd be like frustrated with the, you know, I don't know, a school or a gig or something, or like some aspect of our professional work and be like, how much longer can we do this? Or, you know, that, that sort of thing. So there were times that we were, more actively searching and times that we were more actually like, no, this is, this is okay. This is good. Um, but it, I mean, it's, it's complicated. Like you said, it's, it's not easy for couples who do the same thing in a really competitive field, knowing the expectation is that if you are lucky enough to ever get a full-time job, the odds that two people get a full-time job in the same place are not very high. And we had talked about it like a lot of people do. And, you know, the understanding that, boy, it'd be great for one of us at least. And we kind of had this agreement that we would, you know, one would move if it made sense for both of us to move, we would move, um, you know, to a, to another place, but it's not easy. Um, It's not easy at all. Uh, Just, you know, we, we, everybody I say we like as musicians we wrap a lot of our identity up into the work that we're doing um both you know not our musical performances and and the outward rec- recognition and job titles that we have and positions we hold um you know for better or for worse like we're proud of the work that we do but we also that becomes part of our identity and so giving that up can be just so you know challenging yeah. Um, so it's not been well, easy. My husband did move to Virginia with me. Um, you know, we, thankfully we, we live together. We're still married. Yay. <laughs> um, everything's, everything's good, but he travels a lot. He's still like, we moved also at a weird time in the pandemic, like gigs were just about to start really picking back up. And after we moved, it felt like he's getting called even more than before we moved. And so he's back and forth a lot which is challenging, but at least like he's working and he's doing what he loves and what he wants to do. And I'm working and I'm doing what I love and want to do. And so it's, it's never simple, but it's, um, it's workable. You know, you're hitting on like one of the the real challenges here when you move is that there's kind of a reason that you can give a lot of things up. Um, you might keep a couple things cause they might've been like really good or might, they might get you back in the area, but like, it makes sense for you to give up a lot yeah. Because your 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 job is full time and all that stuff, um, but you both being so entrenched with so many different things, I think I, I heard you talk to Damon on his podcast about kind of mm-hmm. you both being so like fully involved in so many different things that, um, yeah, like it makes sense that that your husband has to go back a lot because yeah. those are really important connections that he's spent a decade. <laughs> putting together right yeah yeah um yeah it's it's tricky and i i mean you're you're right i gave up i like i don't do any teaching down there anymore um 
I'm very happy to hear from my students about how they're doing and those, those sorts of things, but I'm not, I'm not um, working with any of the programs I used to work with. Um, and I'm, I'm going back for gigs when I can, uh, sure. when it works out, but you know, there's things like I got offered something that conflicts with one of our audition days. And so I'm asking like, Oh, like I'd totally love to play this gig, but I really can't miss audition day. You know, there are certain things that are like, I had a concerto scheduled um, for the spring and it conflicted with an opera date. And so I was like, Oh, can we move it? But no, like I got to do the concerto. Like I agreed to do that a while ago, you know, so I'm not going down a whole, whole lot, but I am able to do, uh, I'm doing one of the Florida Grand Opera shows in the spring and one or two um, Palm Beach Symphony things. And there might be other, other little things that I can sneak away for come back and um you know without neglecting things too much but yeah it's it's uh it's challenging to navigate i'm grateful for uh direct flights from dallas to basically everywhere oh, yeah. in south florida <laughs> yeah um yeah not a not a minor thing by the way right yeah and, and yeah i mean we have there, there's direct flights and we're not we're only an hour from dallas so what was the status of the program when you get to Shenandoah that you're you're walking into? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It it was uh, what, what the thing that struck me the most about this program and really the school and the, the conservatory and everything together was the the sense of community. Like the students were so supportive of each other. Were they are so supportive? But it's a different, a little bit different crew now than we had a year ago. Some people left. Some new people came in. Um, and, and there was a, a strongly supportive vibe in the studio. Um, and I think that speaks to uh, the, the qualities that, you know, my predecessor in the job, Earl Yell, um, instilled and the, the, you know, values that he instilled in the students that they were like really there for each other. They help each other out. They encourage each other. Um, and that was really, really nice. Like sometimes studios can be competitive or, you know, kind of have like negative vibes, but I've never gotten that, um, you know, from the start or, or now either. Yeah. The, the, I mean, there was sometimes people walk into new jobs and like, there's like recruitment, uh, crises or, or those kind of like, I didn't have anything like, like I walked into a really good situation. Um, the numbers were good. Uh, we're, we're growing a little bit in the graduate area, but um, you know, yeah, it was a really healthy, healthy program. Um, a lot of people talk about the honeymoon phase and like, you know, that's the, when you start a new job is the time to express all of your equipment needs or it's yes. like whatever yep. you think you're going to need in the next, I don't know, 20 years, like you better ask for it now. Mm -hmm. um, so I did that. Of course, you know, we got, we got some amazing new equipment. We got a five octave marimba one. We got a set of five of those really nice new balanced action Yamaha timpani. Um, we got a, a new rosewood xylophone. Like so, so you know, there's always gear upgrades. But um, I walked into a, a like well-established, good, well-run studio. So that was uh, that. Just that just speaks to you know the job that Earl was doing there with the students. You allude to this point. And I think it's it's actually worth to me exploring a little bit. I don't know whether how much people know think about this, but you know when you do get offered that kind of position you get like a, you're talking about kind of like ask for things right away. That's frequently stuff you, you, you would be asking for actually as negotiation, right? Yeah. Um, and especially when you have more experience with negotiation, 
um, and of job offers than yeah, I yeah. did at that time, which, you know, now I have marginally more, more experience with that part of it. This is kind of funny looking. I think this is all okay to say, but, um, my predecessor Earl Yal, he had, I think most or all of his personal instruments in his office and taught lessons on them and allowed students to play on them and, and all of that. And, I think he had mentioned that to me, you know, in the super packed, like day and a half visit, like we did, the two of us sat down in his office. And I, I think, I don't remember if he started to say it or like, he, he definitely expressed to me, like, these are all my instruments. And at that point you're thinking like, I hope I don't mess up this visit. You know, there's like so much on your mind. You're not <laughs> thinking about if I get this job and I accept it and I move here this office is going to be empty because these are all of Earl's instruments. You know, like those connections didn't happen until I, I like I showed up and the office was beautifully cleared out. Um, and I thought like, Oh, th those were all Earl's instruments. <laughs> um, so, so, I mean, there's that, like it, it hadn't quite connected. They had asked me, um, you know, the administration is so like, are there any large equipment needs that, that you see? And I was remembering what I saw in all the rooms and what we have space for and the number of students. And I was like, well, no, actually, like we have good numbers of things. And then um, when I got there, we had fewer instruments <laughs> than before, which, uh, you know, I, like I, I decided I really love practicing at home. Um, I love having a home studio and being able to do it on my own time and, and that feeling. Um, so I still have, I have all my large instruments at home. And so that was one of the reasons I was like, oh, we need this and we need this um, with the instruments. But For job responsibilities, are is this lessons, studio, ensemble techniques, like the, I guess, like the main kind of things? And do you have, do you have any, other um, adjuncts or anyone else working under you there? There's uh yeah, we have a really amazing adjunct who teaches jazz drum set, um, really just drum set. Um, his name is Alfonso Young and he's been at Shenandoah for decades. Uh, he's, he's amazing. Everybody loves him. So he works, uh, um, several of my students have taken lessons with him. He works with all the jazz majors, um, commercial music, if they're, they're coming in as drum set majors. Um, and his students, his jazz majors, take some classical lessons with me. Um, so yeah, the, the first semester that I was there in the fall, they gave me an easier semester, only had lessons and ensemble and percussion techniques. And then partway through that semester, they said, hey, we have a, there's a music literature class. Um, was the, the title was chamber contemporary trends in chamber ensembles. And, you know, it was, Hey, you have a little room in your teaching load. Would you be interested in teaching this class? And I thought, well, if I've got room, probably like, yeah, I should, I should do it. So I taught that last spring. Um, and that was for, it kind of replaced, we combined some of the, the percussion lit class with like brass lit and, and so it was winds and all the winds, um, not keyboard, instrumental division, strings and percussion performance majors take that class together. And we looked at not just chamber repertoire, but also trends, you know, contemporary trends and chamber ensembles and repertoire and that sort of thing. So I taught that last spring. I won't have the room in my teaching load to do it again this spring, but I'm teaching um, right now a class that is called career navigation for the artist teacher. 
and it's uh, I, I love teaching this class. It's mm. been it's been really rewarding for me, and it's something that um, that I'm happy to be able to share. You know, my thoughts and my experiences with uh, it's for DMA students um, in their third year, and it's part of their required sequence of of classes. And so we've spent a lot of time. Um, you know, on, on academic job application materials. And we did mock interviews last week and just being as prepared as possible to be on the academic job market. But then a, a, another large part of the semester is going to be, um, you know, the non, non-academic job career paths like freelancing and setting up a private studio and, um, you know, potentially starting a nonprofit or grant writing, all the, you know, other business skills that that you know even if you have a full-time job you might be involved in one or more of those other activities so um that's what I've been doing this semester next semester I'm going to have an easier time it's all percussion lessons and percussion ensemble just uh I'm looking forward to that (laughs) a little less a lot less grading (laughs) less like lecture preparation Mm -hmm. um it'll be good you're okay doing the lecture prep. You just don't need to next semester, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I actually, all the, all the non-percussion classes that I've taught, I've enjoyed, I've learned a ton from doing, I like getting to know, you know, sometimes like if my students take the class, then I get to know them in a non-percussion way, which is cool. And I get to know other students in the conservatory, which is nice. I like, I like it all. It's just, uh, yeah, the, the, the prep is a lot of work, prep and grading. Um, you know, yeah, this, this semester, my load is heavier because I have that DMA class plus I have percussion techniques. So that means in the spring, it balances out. That school's in the, is it in the Appalachian mountains or is it's it? In it's in the Shenandoah Valley. Shenandoah Valley. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Shenandoah, yeah, <laughs> read the name of the university, Zambito. Okay. Um, is, are you in a place where there is a, is there a lot of, um, gigging availability where you are or would you have to go like multiple hours to to do stuff we're we're not super far um from dc it's about an hour and a half drive um and some some people that teach at shenandoah do live closer to the city and that would make freelancing you know a lot easier there's not there's not i mean winchester is something like population i don't know less than thirty thousand. i think maybe twenty five thousand. Um, and that is like the, the city within a, I don't know, 45 minute radius at least. Um, so there's not, I mean, there's things every once in a while, smaller orchestra things, um, that come up, but if you really wanted to be freelancing, you would want to be closer to DC. Baltimore's two hours, DC's an hour and a half living in Winchester and commuting out there for gigs all the time would be probably pretty exhausting. Some people play in Richmond. I haven't yet. I had um, worked with an opera company in Charlottesville all over the summer, and that was good. But um, I, well, I'm grateful to still be able to go to South Florida and you know play some of the big orchestral gigs that that I was doing before. I would miss that if I wasn't doing that. I think. What's it been like to move into? I mean, this gets into the shoveling thing, but. Um, <laughs> But what's it been like to move to a smaller, you you were in a bigger city or at least a bigger metropolitan area. What's it been like to move to a smaller one? Usually yeah. it feels like you go in the opposite direction. So. <laughs> right. 
Well, I'll, I'll preface this by saying, well, two, two things. I, I was born in Arkansas. I lived in a like medium town in Arkansas until I was 10. And then I moved to New Hampshire and lived in a, I guess, a little bit bigger town, but it's still um, bigger by New Hampshire standards. Like I never lived in a big city until I was studying in Boston. And then of course, yeah, in South Florida is just this huge metropolitan, you know, metropolitan and suburban sprawl of like heavily densely populated where like Hollywood, the suburb that we lived in, in Florida the last two years before we moved here um, is three times the size of Winchester. Yeah. <laughs> and that was just, you know, a small little like suburb between Fort Lauderdale and Miami. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's mixed. Like we came out of the pandemic. Uh, well, we're kind of still in it, but at, at a time when like we got very used to not going out, you know, um, so it's not that disturbing that a lot of the restaurants close at eight o'clock or nine o'clock or maybe yeah. 10 o'clock if you're, if you're lucky. Um, it is kind of weird having to think about after a concert, like, well, where's going to be open right now if you want to go out? Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's that being in a small town. Um, but I don't know, like, I, I guess I lived in small towns before and plus the pandemic kind of um, made us really used to like, well, I guess, I'll, you know, I'll be at home and that's fine. Um, it's beautiful out here. Like I love the the mountains. Shenandoah National Park is like 25 minutes south of where we live. And um, we've got, we live in this townhouse. So it's like a tall skinny house. It's got mm -hmm. three floors and the view out the back of the third floor in our townhouse is like the mountains and it's beautiful. Um, but it's different, you know, uh, like the closest Macy's is probably an hour away. Um, there's certain things like I love to get shoes at DSW and I've not found one around here yet. So every time we need something like that, it's like, oh, that used to be very convenient. Like in, in Florida, you could get to three or four different Macy's within 40 minutes, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's different. Um, I would imagine the, the food options are, are slightly less also, yeah. not just in terms of time, but in terms of width of cuisine that is true that is true <laughs> actually since since we moved here my husband is from Colombia he's from a city called Ibagain that uh I I got to go to Colombia the very first time this past summer and I got to go to Ibagain for the first time he has always said for as long as I've known him I'm from a small town called Ibagain and I thought it was a small town and when I went there I saw it and I was like, whoa, like this is a huge city. And I looked it up and I can't remember the numbers, but I, it's like double the size of Boston or, you know, maybe like, <laughs> but to him, that's a small town. It's not Bogota, right? It's a, it's a smaller city. Um, so he's never lived in a small town. Um, and so being in, we actually, we don't live in Winchester. Winchester is the, the town that the school is in. We live in Stephen City, which is just south of Winchester and has like population, I think it's like 2000 or something. <laughs> but that's it's a big city for, the, for those areas. <laughs> yeah, like like if we go to, one time we were going to AutoZone or something, we needed something for the cars that, and like they didn't have the part that we needed. And the guy working there is like, oh yeah, I have to go in town for that. <laughs> And what he meant was you have to go to Winchester, that they'll have it at the bigger store. Um, so yeah, it's it's been an adventure and adjusting expectations, but it, but it is it is really beautiful. And I um, mostly shop online now. 
<laughs> I I get that. That makes sense. I think you might know this, but I, I used to teach. Uh, my wife and I both taught at Concord, where Casey mm-hmm. was. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, which is same region, you know, on I sixty four south. Oh, anyway, you know, west. Excuse me, west to Beckley, and then so, anyway, whatever. You know, you know that. Um, but yeah, like we, you know, we you couldn't believe how good nice the summers were in um where we were in west virginia because it was like it would never get above 90 and it was beautiful and like and you're you're right like this time of year i'm sure is just peak autumn it's amazing it's yeah like literally amazing and so i i definitely i know we definitely missouri's fine but but like we miss (laughs) that level of like mountain all the colors are yeah super cool right now yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> yeah, that's my drive home. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, speaking of of podcasts, how is uh how are things at, at percussion? It's good. It's good. Yeah. You know, I'm still still trucking. Um, every every once in a while, you know, I, I know that it feels. I know you know this. It's a lot of work to put these together. And every yeah. once in a while, I think you know everybody that does a podcast thinks like, oh, like it, like it, oh, I gotta do this, or like it's a drag, but. Um, I learned so much from doing it all, all the time. Like it is always a rewarding experience. Um, yeah, it's, it's good. All's good in podcast world. I was disappointed, even though I, I, like, I understood it, but it was like, cause I was on like a month ago yeah. and it was with, and it was with Casey. And then I was like, I was sitting, I'm like, all right, it's going to be cool. I haven't seen Carly in a while. I haven't seen Ksenia in a while, blah, blah, blah. And then like, of course, you know, Ben, I, none of you were there, but um <laughs> Well, we, still, it was... we we uh we had a meeting in august we started taking summer breaks from podcasting mm-hmm. which yeah. i guess this was our second summer that we took the summer off which is good refresh yeah. a little bit because we love it but um it's good to it's good to have time off um and so when we met back to talk about what's this season gonna look like um we kind of all agreed some 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 of us reluctantly and some of us in, enthusiastically to let's try let's see what it feels like doing every other week again um so the workload is spread out a little bit more and then um Casey scheduled some filler episodes in between the other weeks which is the one that you and Damon uh, were on yeah. and uh the, the podcast creator so that's what, what that that was like we all agreed we're gonna do every other week and then casey got excited and wanted to do some more episodes <laughs> <laughs> so that was on one of the off weeks <laughs> yeah 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 that was fun it was we i had a good time and it was, and that was I, a great episode. yeah and i learned it was funny um my wife listened to it and she's like i hope you learned a lot and i'm like i took a lot of notes the whole time like it was it was and i i mean i feel the same way doing this like i always learn so much from talking to my guests that yeah i mean there are times it it can get tiring at times but i'm also like no this is actually like right now is the reason i do it you know for these times with uh with the guests which is which is great as you know yeah Um, yeah for for me it's the editing that's hard like (laughs) The mm-hmm. interviews. There was a, a lovely period of time when I first joined at Percussion. Casey still did all the editing, um, every single episode, and my job was to do research on the guests, come up with some questions, and show up and record. And then, like later, it would just magically show up, and all the all uh-huh. the media outlets would be on YouTube, and that was great. And then um, 
Casey at one point came to his senses and was like, why do I have a team of people, but I'm doing all the editing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't exactly like that, but we decided, let's, you know, we got, now we have five people, but we had four for a while. And it was like, let's spread the work out. So, but yeah, the editing is the part I dread. It's like a, you know, I'm doing late nights and early mornings to get it all done. And, um, but it's, it's always worth it. Yeah. Well, I, I think it might've been when I talked to Ksenia a couple years ago and I actually talked to her for this set of stuff too, for, with Besna, just, it's it's a lot of fun, but I remember talking to her and I think it was right about the time when either you or she, I remember maybe Ben as well, but like you, there's a, you started to rotate who was hosting or who was like the lead host, I guess. And mm-hmm. I, and I remember I was like, Oh, that's I, like somebody started first. And I was like, Oh, it's not Casey this time. Yeah. And I, and I think, I, I think she told me that this is part of what the conversations were like, we can switch off who hosts, someone will take care of the social media, like all like. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That, that was a big thing. Um, that wasn't too much longer after I started doing the podcast that uh, it got to a point that I think, you know, it just felt felt like, why don't we share this more equitably? Um, yeah. And I, I still remember, like, I had been doing it just for a couple of months. And then it was whoever invited the guest would be the host, the person, you know, does the inter- like the introduction and comes up with the structure of the episode, um, which is good. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. Invite yeah. somebody you you know why you want to have them on and what you want to hear them talk about. Right. While also dealing with Ben's comments in the in the chat. I well, there's that. Yeah. You have to uh you have to really you just have to ignore the chat if you're speaking. <laughs> it's That's one of what the you have to do. Like I think I remember when I was on years ago. And I remember the chat showing because this is when I was um, I was on when Megan was was one of the mm, okay. hosts at the time, and I was actually in her office. We were recording it in, in, together in her right. office, and I remember watching the thing like, like what is going on? And I'm and I am speaking, and I'm looking at like, don't react to anything that's going on there. <laughs> <laughs> I think some of some of the hosts are better multitaskers and will actually be speaking and still read and register I don't even look at it if I'm speaking like <laughs> it means I miss sometimes like if I'm talking and somebody writes like oh, I have something sometimes yeah. I might miss it but I also don't get derailed by the jokes yep. yeah <laughs> <a> multitasker <laughs> yeah yeah you want to finish with like an adjusted a shorter random ask question segment typically oh, than yeah. what we're <laughs> it's going to be different questions. Slightly different, and some some about are, that. I that? Think like you stumped me last time. I can't oh. remember the question. You there were some questions I was like, "Whoa!" I oh. didn't expect that. Let's see what. Let's, let's see. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I was thinking. What, okay, so now that you're in, now that you're in Virginia, mm-hmm. when you go back to Florida for gigs and other stuff, is there like a food? That you're like, we have to get, like, you're on the plane, like, I cannot wait till we land and I'm going to get this and this, and then I can, like, really focus on what I'm doing here. Yeah, there's, like, a lot of foods. Um, 
Yeah, there's a lot that probably, probably the thing that I miss the most is arepas, uh, you know, like corn, corn patty that we could just get them at the grocery store and make them at home. And it was like, especially during the pandemic, when we were always home at five o'clock, five o'clock was arepa time and we'd sit there and, you know, catch up and have our arepas and drink tea or, or whatever. I miss that a lot. We can't find them anywhere here. And you can make them like from the powder and mix. And my husband does that, but I usually honestly don't take the time. So arepas is one, one big thing. There's pastries, like there's a, a, I guess it's a Cuban bakery chain called Don Pan where they have panda bonos and they're so good. They're like kind of cheesy, a little bit sweet, super good. Um, my husband got some yesterday and I asked him how he was going to send them to me. And he said, I don't know, maybe email. That's <laughs> like, you're like that's Sometimes not gonna help. Just come home with like a big bag full of them. Um, and I'm I'm not a huge fast food person, but there's a chain down in South Florida. I don't know if you've been down there, you would, but but Pueblo Tropical, um, and they have these things called Trappy Chops, and they have these special dipping sauces, and the curry mustard sauce is like the best. Um, so I always go that you know, and it's quick and easy. So it's like it's like a rice bowl with beans and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all kinds of vegetables and stuff. And that curry mustard sauce is so good. Um, should I, should I tell you more? There's like so many Colombian restaurants that my Oh no, bring it on. Yeah, do it. yeah. <laughs> There's this soup that you can get at this restaurant called Mondongo's. It's, it's a hiaco. It's like kind of a chicken soup and they have the best lemonade that I've ever had. And I think what they actually do with my husband is trying to make it replicated at home they take limes and um, like, instead of just squeezing the lime and maybe adding sugar and water, um, they like blend the lime. So it's like, oh, interesting. consistency. Like at first I, I thought they had milk in it or something. I was like, why is it that color? And it's so good. So we always have to go to Mondongos and get like crazy good lemonade too. <laughs> There's more. That's good. <laughs> those are good. Those, those, are, those are really good. Um, all those options. Like, like I'm just, I'm super hungry now. Uh, Cuban coffee, Cuban coffee. Ooh. Yeah. It's just super strong espresso with a lot of sugar in it. That sounds incredible. Like the, the yeah. greatest thing I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. <laughs> Do you have a favorite book? Just I feel don't. like you, you might've asked me that. Um, mm. I'll, I'll tell you, I think that, that I feel like you asked me that the last time and it was one like, what am I reading right now? Because I'm driving 18 hours a week, you know? <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. I'll tell you a book that I read within the last couple of years that I recommend an awful lot is Dane Compose. It was written by a composer named Dale Trumbauer, who I actually went to undergrad with. We studied at University of Maryland together. And she recently wrote a piece for me from Marimba and, um, and, uh, and voice speaking, speaking marimba player. Um, and anyway, her book, she, she's a um, professional full-time composer. She wrote this book on um, kind of the, the mental health side of having a creative life. Um, the subtitle is Overcoming Anxiety and Self-Doubt Within a Creative Life. And um, there are a lot of things in it that, you know, if you compose, it relates exactly to what you do, you know, things like how to deal with, you know, a creative block or like mental writing block. You can't, you don't, you sit down and you don't know how to get started or you're not making the progress you want, like lots of strategies for those things. But then a lot about, um, you know, dealing with self-doubt, imposter syndrome kinds of things and, and finding a way to move forward creatively through that. So nonfiction, not a typical self-help 
self-help book. I, I find it was actually really entertaining to read. Like it was engaging in a way that self-help books are not always. Um, but anyway, she wrote this, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago now, but I ordered a copy. Um, I, I guess I saw something, I like reconnected with, with Dale on, um, on social media during the pandemic and got a copy. I was like, she wrote a book? Like, wow, like that's so cool. Uh, and it's it's great. So it's one I've recommended to students. We had her on at Percussion um, about a year ago. Mm. That's when we started conversations about this Marimba piece that she wrote. It's been a like super long day and you're just really tired. Is there a, like a t- something on a TV show or something where if you like, you're like, you could just, you've either seen it before or just like, you just know it, you're, you put it on, you're just going to be in a, in a better place. Yeah. Um, you know, I, there's two categories of shows. Like when my husband is in town, we watch shows together. And then when he's not in town, I try to watch shows that he would not be interested in anyway. Um, so yeah, the last year or so I got through the entire series of new girl, which is um, a really fun show. Uh, I just put that like I'm folding laundry or I'm washing ditches or whatever driving that I don't, don't watch while I'm driving, but there's a new girl rewatch podcast that I do listen to while I'm driving. Oh, nice. Um, so there's that. I finished that though. And I, I just recently started, this might sound ridiculous, but I started Grey's Anatomy, which I never watched, but I was like, what kind of like, it's a little, it's kind of girly, right? It's like drama. Like what would Felipe not mind that I'm watching without him? Um, <laughs> And so it's like, it's because the show is like 20 years old now. And I've I know because I've never been like a super TV movie kind of person. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of sucked into that. Like, I think this fall I got through the first season so far. We'll see. Um, but the when, when my husband is here, we watch Blacklist. We got totally into Do you know the show Blacklist? I, I've heard of it. I don't really know. Is that the James Spader um, Who's the, I can't remember who the main actor is. I think it is. I think it is, but it's the one with the, there's, um, you know, a top 10 most wanted criminal who becomes an informant for the FBI and works with them. And it's like, it's super fun, but um, kind of, it's kind of violent. It's kind of dark, but it's like really well done. So we watch that pretty consistently. Um, we're, we're, I don't know, halfway through the series or something. But we don't watch we don't watch our shows separately. We have to watch them together. So, mm. so you know, pauses sometimes. I gotta watch yeah. Anatomy this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that's a good way to uh, to just decide that that's not that. Like you're just like looking through. <laughs> I just imagine me like it's like yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. No, no, he is not going to be interested. In this. <laughs> He's not going to be like, why did you watch that without me? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's smart. I think that's why my wife likes the. Um, she watches a lot of the British, uh, like the period stuff that like PBS oh, yeah. does. Yeah, yeah. I'm not against it, but I, I'm certainly not going to like. It's like it's fine. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm just going to watch sports anyway, so it'll be you know we we it works out. Yeah. <laughs> Now that you've gotten, because you said you got to go to Columbia to see where mm-hmm. Felipe is from, what's yeah. the next place that you both want to get to now? Oh my gosh, we want to go back to Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> like seriously, there's yeah, like yeah. so many things that we didn't get to do. Yeah, we've talked about the Grand Canyon for years too, but trying to find the right time of year weather-wise to do it. 
Um, we want to go in here like I've I've never heard Chicago Symphony in Chicago or you know even Philly. Like I've heard orchestras when they're on tour, but we want to go in here for some orchestras. It would be great to spend more time in New York. We want to go to Europe. Um, the the challenge right now we have this dog, um, this this little the the cutest little Chihuahua you'll ever see. Um, and uh, it's since we got him, it's been a challenge to find out what what is the longest trip we can still take him on. Um, right. we, we travel with them, so yeah, you know, yeah. But he he went to Colombia and back, and that went that went just fine. Whoa! Yeah, it's a okay. it's a long story with this dog. He was he's like family dog. Family members passed away, and now we have him, and so I love him with my whole heart. And I want to take him everywhere. So um, yeah, I like figured out all the paperwork to get this dog to Columbia and back. Now I know how to do it. Wow. Yeah. What's uh, like, okay. What's like the, if, if there's a reason not to take a dog to Columbia, what's the primary reason? The, the only hard thing was making sure he'd have all the paperwork to come back to the U S it's the U S that's stricter. Um, you know, like rabies, like Colombia is on the list of countries that is higher risk for rabies. And mm. so if they're not vaccinated and have like, like the CDC has really specific things that have to be on the, the certificate. Um, but other than that, I mean, it, it was, we, we had to do, this makes me sound crazy, but we had to do uh, like an exam in the U.S. to be able to get the paperwork for him to enter Colombia. And then because we were gone for, I guess, longer than a week or 10 days, I can't remember um, we had to do another exam in Colombia to be able to, for him to have the paperwork to enter the country again. That would have been hard to do if, um, if I didn't have my husband there to speak Spanish because, you know, any vet in Colombia is only going to speak Spanish most likely. And that would have been complicated to say the least, but yeah, I mean, it, it all worked out and it was, um, you know, probably, probably like I, I would worry less knowing that he's okay, he's happy, he's there, rather than, you know, like, uh, like, I don't know, leaving him with somebody seems hard, just because of that, that family history that we have, but. Sure. I can how, talk for is, another hour about Dexter the Chihuahua. <laughs> <laughs> well, Careful how many questions you ask. <laughs> I, well, I did want to ask how old the dog is, if it's been in the family. Yeah, he's an old guy. He's, uh, he's 13 now. Wow. Yeah. But that's, the little dogs, they live longer. That's right. what I hear. I've never been a dog person before. I've never had a pet in my life, um, except for a fish when I was a little kid. But um, yeah, we, we adopted him when he was 11, about a little over two years ago. Now he's 13 and he's just, he's uh, he's got a lot of energy and he doesn't really seem to be slowing down too much. And he's, he's, I know I sound like a proud parent saying this, but he's really well behaved for a chihuahua. Like he's pretty calm for a chihuahua. He has his moody moments, but no. <laughs> he does this magical thing during Zoom meetings where he wants to be in the room and he sleeps the entire time. So he's here right now. Oh, nice. He loves podcasts. <laughs> he just he just likes hearing people talk and you know, like people, my people are around. I'm safe. I'm gonna take a nap. No. <laughs> that's great one of our close friends of ours who who teaches that he's the jazz professor he and his wife have i think four chihuahuas oh, 
So that's a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. Yeah. It's, it's hilarious to be at their place because um because like there's there's like two that are pretty chill and uh-huh. there are two that are not. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like they were and then one of the one of the ones who's not actually the last time I was over, she just hung out with me for like and was just just laid down. It was great. And I couldn't believe uh-huh. it. I had never seen this dog not treat me with absolute disdain. <laughs> All the other times, but it was, it's, I mean, they're, they're so cute, as you, as you know. They're, they're funny. They're funny dogs. They bond with people really well. This is yep. what I've read in the last two years of having a Chihuahua. Like they tend to, they'll just like find a person and then they like, they, you know, they're, I guess they're social, they're super loyal. Can, can I tell you a funny Dexter story? Please, please, yeah. Okay. So this was just um, two weeks ago. I had this faculty chamber concert. It was a whole bunch of works for, um, percussion and clarinet and violin. And the last piece on the program was this arrangement of Promenade by Gershwin, which is from, I can't remember the name of the movie, but it's from like an old time movie. And it was part, it was the, the incidental music when somebody's walking a dog. And so a, a German clarinetist arranged this piece for, he arranged it for clarinet, string quartet, and piano. We took the piano part, did it on two marimbas, you know, treble and bass and played it with the string faculty and some students, um, violin faculty who was playing on the recital and the clarinetist played the solo. And at, at the end of the score, um, there's like a, a trill the clarinetist is holding. And then it says in the score, a dog walks across the stage. And then in parentheses, it said, or naked person. I don't know what that was about. We thought like, we're doing it at school. Let's do it, let's do it with a dog. And so we had this whole plan. And, you know, I really love my dog and everybody knows I have this cute little dog. And so it's like, great, like, this will be so fun. Like, it'll just be so delightful. Dexter will just walk out on the stage and he'll be so cute. And we we practiced it in the dress rehearsal and I put the cutest little bow tie on him and it was just adorable and he did great. And we did it like three times just to make sure it was going to be great. And then in the concert, um, one of, one of my students, her job was to go and get him from my office and bring him out at the right time, put him on the stage and just do his thing. And the clarinetist is holding the trill and the door does not open. And everybody like on stage, we look and nothing happens. No dog enters the stage. And so the clarinetist is like, okay, I guess we finished. And we had like three chords that we all played together or something like that. Um, and the concert ended and I'm like, what happened? <laughs> there was no dog. Like, where's my dog? Is he okay? And is my student okay? Um, did she forget like what happened? And so I get back, I, I run to my office and she's standing there and she's like, I'm so sorry. Uh, like he, he tried to bite me. I didn't know what to do. Like he was just fighting her like crazy. Like he, he was like, who are you? Why are you trying to pick me up? I was having a perfectly good nap. Like, leave me alone. <laughs> and so um, I don't think I'll ever uh, try to involve Dexter in another concert <laughs> because I think you need like a dog trainer and like a, you know, like a, a trained dog, not a, not a 13 year old Chihuahua, although he looked very cute. So I, I brought him, I came back and like talked to the audience with him because I thought at least somebody should see how cute he looked. Of course. But yeah. So he's uh, not a stage dog apparently, but. <laughs> not with an audience. Apparently if it's, if it's just a rehearsal, he's fine. <laughs> right. He was totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 
<laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> and so uh, then we had to explain, like, well, why was everybody on stage looking at the door, and why did the concert <laughs> seem so weird? Because the audience didn't know, <laughs> didn't know anything was missing. <laughs> uh, weird things. Things <laughs> you learn. I didn't know Gershwin wrote that kind of piece. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, like I guess it was uh, it was the clarinetist who arranged it who inserted the dog into the piece because it's from a movie, you know. Um, I don't know where the naked person part of the score where that came from, <laughs> what that idea was. <laughs> I have no idea. Oh. <laughs> like I got the music, I said like, okay, well, like, yes, I think we can do this on marimba. And two, like, what is this about? <laughs> so, um, yeah, chihuahuas are—they can be temperamental. It turns out. It turns out. Who knew? <laughs> awesome. All right. You know what? I think we're good. That's a that's, yeah. a, that's a great way to end. Dexter Sounds is the good. way to finish the episode. <laughs> good job, Dexter. So. I heard his name. He opened his eyes a little bit. <laughs> oh, very nice. What a pleasure getting to check back in with Carly for this show. I hope she had a great end of the semester and is enjoying her break with Felipe and Dexter and has a great rest of her year. Speaking of Carly, this week's rave is an appreciation for the At Percussion podcast, which concluded with its final episode that posted on December 23rd, 2022. As some of you may know, when I was thinking about starting this show, which I ended up doing in 2016, I was in the midst of listening to a lot of the early episodes of the At Percussion podcast. And it was that show along with a number of other types of podcasts that I was listening to at the time, that got me thinking that I could host my own show. One of the items I appreciated with that percussion was the way that they focused a lot on the niche portion of percussion that those folks and myself find ourselves in most often. It is a pretty small field, but one that was ready to be documented through this new audio format. I've been fortunate to be a guest on App Percussion. Check out episodes 83 and 333, both of which are on YouTube, which was a lot of fun. And also to interview all of the principals here. I talked to all of the original main folks early on in the life of this show, creator Casey Cangelosi, longtime host Ben Charles, and hosts at the time Megan Arns and Laurel Black, all in 2016 and 2017. Then I interviewed some of the regular substitute hosts, Tracy Wiggins, Brian Nosny, and Bill Schultes, all in 2017 and 2018, and then to the more recent permanent hosts, Carly Vigna in 2019, Ksenia Kolmjanovich in 2020, and both of them, and newest co-host Caleb Pickering in 2022. I know that over the years, I've looked at their guest lists, and they've looked at mine, because Casey told me they and mutually picked up guests for our podcasts from those lists. And I listened to all of the episodes that they put out. So I've kept up with the items, with the people, and I've enjoyed my time with them. More than anything else, 
I'm really appreciative of the space that they helped to create in which myself and many other shows have helped to fill and keeping up a great focus on topics, guests, and collegiality. I know that listening to their show was very helpful for me and my show. And I know that I regularly was able to learn a lot, not only about their guests, but also about their personalities. As a group, they are really fun as a unit and individually. And I've enjoyed getting to know all of the hosts and their guests through the show's run and subsequently gotten to know all of them through my own show. So thank you to At Percussion. I'm glad to hear that the archive will continue to be available through their website, on YouTube, and will be helped through their Patreon page. So contribute to it so it stays up and continued great success to all involved. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Happy New Year, folks, and we'll see you in 2023.